Good morning. I'm Darrell Gunter, your host for leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. We are so lucky to have as our in-studio guest today, Ms. Ariane Brandt, the owner of Eutechnia Consulting. She's here with us today to share with us her vast knowledge about leadership. Ari, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. And thanks for interrupting your schedule. I, I know that you've got quite a few clients and, and you're teaching over at Rutgers, so I really appreciate you coming in today to share with us your thoughts and insights on leadership. It's my pleasure. So before we get started into Eutechnia, tell us a little bit about your background, you know, your education, and how you came to form Eutechnia. Yeah, I, well, my background is completely in the arts. I started off life uh, training as a classical pianist, and then I moved into classical dance. And when I ended up as an undergraduate at Yale, I changed my major to theater studies. And I graduated as a, you know, w with a focus on acting. I went to drama school in London. And when I came back to New York, I began a career that included with the performing and some writing and directing, coaching, and teaching. And in that process, I found that I was, as an acting coach, working with people's lives, because that's the instrument of the actor. And I was very struck by how so many of my teachers were what I felt was irresponsible, very destructive around people's lives, maybe great mm. around their art, you know, right. Right. But very destructive around their lives. So I certified as a life coach so that I could be more, um, more conducive to being healthy to somebody's way of working on themselves as an artist. And my practice started to grow. So I started to work not just with artists, but with executives and people in government and ministry and homemakers and survivalists, people from all walks of life. And while my practice was growing, I was invited to work on two Broadway shows. And in that process, I found that there was a lot of dysfunction in the creative teams, the producing teams, and sometimes the crew. And I thought, well, I really feel like they need coaching. Yes. Um, so I decided that I needed to certify an executive and organizational coaching. So I went and got those certifications at NYU. And that's basically how my practice was built. So I work largely with um, new and small businesses and not-for-profits. And occasionally I've worked with CEOs from some very major companies. That is awesome. Uh, my daughter uh, is an aspiring actress. She's, oh, she's wow. 15. She's been in theater since she was nine. And uh, I have to agree with you of the dysfunction <laughs> in the arts, you know. And um, it's interesting. I, I think that they have very, very uh, specialized personalities that require a lot of finesse in, in dealing with them. So I, I, I see it firsthand, so I totally understand that. But what is interesting is how you transpose that to the business world because there is dysfunction in the business world as well. There is, and, you know, it's kind of two sides of the same coin. Artists really break down on emotional intelligence in their day-to-day -day lives. And with that, I include the way they deal in the industry with, their colleagues or directors or agents, they might be terrific once the camera is rolling or the curtain goes up, but everything around that can really be lacking. And artists, as a rule, have issues around making money a lot of times. 
Whereas business people often find that they're, you know, they're in business, they may be doing very successfully, but they wish they had become a rock star, or they wonder where the creativity has gone in their lives. And I really feel this is a false division. Mm. And, you know, it's my mission to kind of dissolve that division. So let's, let's talk about that division. You think it's a false division. Yes. And, and why is that? Well, one of my, I have two great gods, if you will. Uh, one of them is Shakespeare, and the other one is Abraham Maslow. And he wrote a book that, that I feel is like a Bible to me. I, he actually didn't write the book. It was his diary, his journals that were published after his death, and it's called Maslow on Management. Oh, wow. And in that book, he asserts that the highest purpose of business is to create good citizens. And when I read that, I in this book, um, Maslow on Management, he asserts that the highest purpose of business is to create good citizens. And that so resonated with me because the highest purpose of art is to create good citizens. And so when I saw that connection, I thought this is completely crazy that we see ourselves, you know, the art commerce dialectic, the business creativity dialectic. This is insane. We're both after the same thing. Why isn't it that we can't integrate these parts of ourselves into one being? And so that became my mission. I never knew that in regards to art. The, the goal was to create good citizens. Um, where did, how, how did that come about? Well, it came about through my own self-soul-searching and my own, you know, uh, sort of values around uh, why I'm, I, I'm an artist. Mm -hmm. But it also came from years and years of coaching actors. Mm -hmm. and finding, you know, and dealing with the fact that ultimately the most important thing in your acting is your intention for your audience. Mm. So I would ask them, I, I can't tell you how many I've asked, why do you act? And they would say, well, because it makes me feel good. Why does it make you feel good? Because I'm expressing myself. Why do you need to express yourself? And when you keep penetrating and penetrating and deepening the question further and further and further, you finally get to a place where every single actor I've worked with has said something like, I do this to connect with people so that we don't feel so alone, so that we're more tolerant of each other and live in peace. Mm. Wow. The end game of art is peace. Mm. And when there's world peace, I will finish. Wow. I'll be done. I'll go do something else or I'll die or whatever. But, you know... <laughs> The, the end game is peace. The end game is us finding a way to be in a, a state of healthy citizenry with one another as, as citizens of the world. And so that's where, where that came from for me. Mm -hmm. And as we look at business, um, you know, recently in your class you had us read this phenomenally great book that was based upon the art of war. Yes. and uh, yes. outthink the competition, which I featured in a speech last week in Kentucky. Um, but I really like the positive aspects of, of how he interpreted the art of war to really have a, 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 a true cooperative, communicative, communicative type of uh, company. Yes. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be very honest with you. I assign that book 
on several levels, if, you know, as you may remember. Yes. Um, part of it was an exercise just to get the group to figure out how to do something innovative in reading the book. But I chose the book because I think he has a lot of valuable things to say. And at the same time, he comes from a very competitive mindset. Yes. In some business, I think you do need to understand competition and you need to understand how to survive competition, all of those things. But ultimately, I have a much larger vision for business than he does. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 don't, I don't, or I should say not larger, that makes it sound, you know, uh, self-aggrandizing, but I have a different vision than he does. I don't think it's necessary to see this as a way of competing. But what he does in his uh, framework for how to compete in the business world, he does come up with some paradigms for how to collaborate within a company. And I do think those are very valuable mm-hmm. and, and worth looking at. And nothing he says is wrong. It's just uh, if, you, you know, if we were to have a discussion about the world, I would say the rules need to change. And because the rules need to change, we have to think it in terms of a very different framework. And how, sh- how do you think the rules need to change? I think we need to somehow uh, have a reinvestigation and uh, rebirthing of the social contract where we understand that we're here as interconnected human beings for ourselves and for everyone else and that we have a responsibility to one another. And just because something can be done doesn't mean it should be done. Mm. And just because something is legal doesn't mean it's ethical. Right. And we have to, you know, make an effort to take the higher ground. And what is the higher ground? I'm very interested to hear your thoughts about this change that needs to happen. What is the higher ground? Well, I think the higher ground requires us to first consult ourselves from the point of view of our values. And I have to say, when I coach executives, the greatest joy that I see them get and that I get in working with them is when they make their business and management and leadership decisions based on their sense of values. Because then when they go to work, it's not they become a different person at work. They're the same human being expressing themselves in a business environment through their work. And that means I get to be joyful from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed. So what, what about this old thinking that um, the boss has to be cold and icy and have a very low emotional intelligence score? And, and for the benefit of our listeners, if you could, uh, before you answer that, uh, tell them what emotional intelligence is all about. Well, emotional intelligence, which kind of became a buzzword, you know, um, I guess a couple of decades ago, Daniel Goleman kind of coined it, although people had been using it before him. And it is the, it, it has several components, uh, being able to navigate social relationships, being aware of your emotional states, being able to manage your emotional states, and being able to have compassion and empathy. And it's really the part of us that deals with the social aspect of being in the world, the social-emotional aspects of being. And what they found was that the people who were the most sustainably successful in business 
were not necessarily the most technically adept, but they were the most emotionally intelligent adept. They had the highest emotional IQs. And so this became something that was used more and more as a way of training and, uh, you know, a, a certain amount of, uh, I think, in a healthy sense, indoctrination about boosting emotional IQ among business leaders. I think artists need it just as much as business people do. And have you found the managers of today embracing emotional intelligence? I th it depends. It depends. I, I think it depends on um, the values of the organization because an organization has to support that point of view. And uh, it, that's a complicated question. I wish I could answer that very simply because some leaders are wonderful in certain areas of emotional intelligence and in others they just don't even want to look at it. And the, you know, it's called CEO disease where they've gotten so successful they're looking at you and going, why should I change what I'm doing? It got me this far. Mm -hmm. It must be the formula for success. But to get to that next level is usually a confrontation around some piece of emotional intelligence, usually. So I think there is more open to, openness to it. I think there's far more awareness about it now. It's certainly in the common parlance of leadership and coaching and so forth. And I think it depends how much somebody's going to pick it up by how much they feel it's actually supported in their environment. There's some very cutthroat companies that burn people out very quickly and um, are okay with that. And as long as you're okay with that, you're not going to care very much about emotional intelligence. Right, right. That's the, is that the kill or be killed mentality? Right, right, right. And... and and so to your, your purpose of getting this world to a higher ground, um, so do you attack it uh, one CEO at a time, one <laughs> class at a time? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I once thought that I would make a tagline for my company that was something like, you know, uh, something really terribly uh, highfalutin, like, you know, uh, helping people find their joy, you know, one leader at a time or something ridiculous I like, like that. that. <laughs> Um, I'm somebody who thinks on such a large scale, and I love the idea of having a very large campus for the work I do, but at the end of the day, the most glorious and the most humbling moments are the ones when you see one person shift in front of you. Right, right. And, you know, I'm here to do my little piece, and I think there are so many people, you know, doing wonderful work out there. And, um, on that. and what are the key attributes to be a good leader in, in today's place? In, today, in dealing with these knowledge workers, what are the key characteristics that a, a leader must have? Well, we've talked about emotional intelligence, so I think a high... EQ is, is really quite important. Um, I think the understanding that context is everything and that you're going to make different decisions and even have different behaviors depending on context. You're never going to be one thing all the time, all the way through. That just doesn't work anymore. Uh, for my money, a great leader has a high, high level of integrity. They're committed to everyone to their company, to their employees, to their shareholders, to their 
clients and customers and to the world at large. It's a very triple bottom line point of view. And they love what they do. And they're able to execute even in difficult circumstances, even if it makes them unpopular. They're able to execute. And when you say uh, execute when it might make them unpopular, um, might that be a situation where there might be some layoffs that need to occur or maybe shutting down a particular product line that's no longer, that's lived its, its life? How would you characterize that? Those are two good examples. I mean, I'm not a huge one in favor of layoffs, but sometimes they are necessary, um, although I've seen companies get around that problem um, very creatively, but that's not always possible, and you do sometimes have to lay somebody off, uh, move the company in a new direction. Um, yes, I mean, all of those are, are perfect examples of where you may do something that at least in certain eyes are unpopular. You have to be able to stand your ground, and you have to have the ability to be influential enough to make sure that your prerogatives are getting accomplished. And there are people who are wonderful thinkers, but they can't get anything done. Mm. So you have to have, you know, both abilities. And if you don't, surround yourself with people who do. Right, right. You know, some, some of the sustainably great leaders are often very humble, not charismatic, not the ones you notice when you walk in a room. They're the people who've surrounded themselves with people who are actually more intelligent and more capable than they are, and they know how to do that. And there have actually been studies done and books written about how some of the really greatest leaders are people you've never heard of. They're not the Jack Welches. They're not the Iacocas. They're not. But because they're not super charismatic and they don't make a huge effort of imposing their personalities or egos on their companies, they don't get a lot of PR, so we don't hear of them. And a lot of a lot has been written since the uh, Steve uh, Jobs book, the auto, you know, the, yes, yes. the biography has come out, um, and, and, and of course his untimely death. But um, where would you put him in regards to leadership? Good, bad, indifferent, compli- complex, complicated, um, incomplete, incomplete, okay. unintegrated. Okay. I think he had such an ability to synthesize really profound principles in one area of his business thinking and not at all around people. And I would not call him a great leader. Um, I would consider him somebody who had absolute greatness in him and made some terrific (laughs) decisions um, on, on a certain plane. But to me, he's not a great leader because he didn't know how to manage relationships in a productive and constructive way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that's not going to create the good citizens that we talked about. You know, I don't think he was enough of a good citizen in and of himself. And, you know, it really struck me, Darrell, when he was asked, why did he want this book to be written? Because he asked the biographer to write it. Yes, yes. And... Uh, and he said, so my children know who I really am. And I, it made my heart break because I thought, you had the opportunity for your children to know who you are. And that was in being present for them as their parents. Right, right. And that was, that was the chance. 
writing a book isn't going to do that, unfortunately. They, they now have to do therapy, I mean, or whatever. You know, it's, you can't, you know, replace that. So if you could speak to Steve Jobs right now, what advice would you have given him? Because there's managers out there that are reading his book wanting to be or emulate him, and we want them to emulate the best and, and not the things that are not so good. Right. What, what advice would you give him? Well, I don't know that I'd give him any advice. I think, you know, if I were coaching him, I would ask him to really look at what he sees as his legacy and to look at the consequences of his decisions. I'm, I'm rather, I don't want to say I'm brutal because I'm actually very nurturing when I coach, but when it comes to presenting somebody with a truth that they may not want to look at, um, that can be a pretty stark moment. And um, I would keep on him about it so that he could see how it doesn't really align for him with who he wants to be because clearly he wants to be the guy his kids know. He wants to be this guy in, that his kids will get to know and appreciate and care for. He has the opportunity to do that in the present. And what can he do to make that shift now rather than posthumously, if you will? Um, and see if he can get in touch with the place in him that that speaks to. I mean, I don't think I can do anything or facilitate anything with somebody who doesn't want it for themselves. I'm not there to push an agenda of my own. I'm there to uncover their true agenda and help support them in that. I, I fully agree because... Um as, as my wife would say to me on many occasions, you know, the only time it's good to give advice is when someone asks you for advice because that means that they're actually open to, to listening versus giving someone advice who doesn't want to listen. Yes, that's very wise. And, you know, it's my job to see if somebody, um, I don't want to say a, a, a a bad word on, on air, but if somebody has uh, something going on that's not really passing the smell test, if yes, you will, yes, yes, yes. it's my job to point that out. So I would, you know, I see myself as being hired to point those things out. And if somebody doesn't like what I have to say, I have to be willing to be fired. But that's, that's the discipline of being a coach, is you have to be willing to be fired at yes. any moment. Yes. Because they don't like what you said. Um, but, you know, clearly Steve Jobs wanted a different, a different experience for himself with his children than he had. So somewhere one would hope that could have been penetrated, and that's where maybe some movement could have happened with him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I've, I've seen in the science, technical, medical publishing uh, industry is that you have a lot of leaders who led these companies based upon an old paradigm Mm -hmm. and the paradigm has moved and they're still doing the same type of things, the same type of behavior and the world is changing around them, but they don't realize that the ground is moving from underneath their feet. How would you recommend to someone who reports to 
one of those CEOs, how they could get them to see the light, to see that things need to change. What are some of the tips that you could provide them as to how do they manage up? Yeah, it's a great question. First of all, just let me put the caveat that this very much depends on who you're dealing with and how they take in information. But the first thing one has to be able to do, if you can just at least get the inroad to have the meeting to say, can I bring something to your attention, is the consequences. So you have to have some kind of data that allows them to see that there are consequences. And usually the consequences are apparent before the crisis arrives. You see shifts and movement. You see performance issues coming up. You see bottom line issues coming up. You know, profits aren't where they were, or profits may be doing beautifully, but your retention is really poor. You have to find the places where this is acting out within the company. That is a very important point about gathering uh, data. And are, are there some salient data points that you recommend to, to gather, or you got just got to look at the situation? And it's like having a performance dashboard and saying, what's going right, what's not going right? And with those things that are, that are not going right, uh, that you would present that to them? Is, is that how you would recommend going about that? Well, it's partially that, yes. And it's partially figuring out what matters to them. In other words, if I say to somebody, uh, a leader, look, you, your retention is terrible, and they say, yeah, but we're more profitable than we've ever been, and et cetera, et cetera, then you have to figure out, well, what's the impact of a low retention that might get to them? Might it be that the, the reputation of the company is going downhill somewhat because people see how unhappy folks are when they, they work there? Is there uh, some other result that's going to capture their attention if they're not people-oriented and that doesn't make a difference to them? I've actually worked with people who aren't, because I sometimes work in the not-for-profit sector, who aren't numbers-oriented. So when you say you're not meeting your budget, it doesn't move them. But if you say you're not meeting your mission, that gets them worried. See what I'm saying? Yes. But, you know, but one thing I, I found, Ari, is that a lot of times the company's strategy and the employees' uh, performance reviews are not aligned. Their job descriptions are not aligned with the strategy. That's absolutely right. Uh, just last week I, w I, w I was presenting at a conference, and I had 20 executives in the room, and when I asked them how many of you have a strategy, half of their hands went up, and then I said, okay, for the, for the half of you that do have a strategy, how many of you actually align your strategy with the performance objective setting? And nobody oh. aligned those two. Wow. So the dysfunction is, is, is really built in. It is. And, and, you know, that's where sometimes an outside eye is helpful. Not always. does it have to be an outside person. But sometimes an outside person can really point out those discrepancies. And, again, sometimes you have to make a case for why would it be important to make the, you know, key performance indicators right. align with the strategy of the department or the company as a whole. You have to make the case for it because for some people it's not an obvious link. And, uh, and some people don't take performance reviews terribly seriously or the company doesn't really reward based on the performance review. It's all kind of done as a, you know, a gesture, yes. nothingness. Yes. So 
at every level, you have to see where the breakdown has occurred. Well, you know, Ari, believe it or not, we're at the end of our interview. Oh. This has been so good. you got to come back on the program another day for a follow-up because I, I think that uh, in the class at the Rutgers Entrepreneurial uh, uh, Initiatives Pro- Pioneers Program, you, you do a fantastic job, and that's why I had to have you on our program. But I wanted to ask you, when are you going to write your book? Oh, you were not the first person who said that. <laughs> so, Darrell, I guess I better get started because you've embarrassed me into starting. But uh, I mean, I, hopefully the, soon. The, I have about book, five books I want to write, so I've got to hunker down. And, there you go. I mean, the, the, the book, the video, I mean, I just think that you just have so much to offer. Oh, thank um, you. And thank you for having me. I'd love to come again. So oh, you're, you're very, very welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, we're here with Ari Brandt. She's the owner of Eutechnica Consulting. And um, if you've missed this interview, it's going to be up on iTunes. Uh, go to iTunes, look in for Seton Hall University, and look for leadership, and look for Ari Brandt. Ari, I want to thank you for coming on the program. Thank you so much. Well, folks, there you have it. Ari Brandt, the owner of Eutechnia Consulting. This is Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership on WSOU 89.5. FM, streaming on the net at WSOU.net. Remember, leadership begins with you. Have a great weekend.